Welcome to the I Might Be Wrong podcast with Travis Seppala, where we discuss faith, dogmatics, science, math, physics, art, and share conversations with all humans. Well, mostly only the interesting ones. Join me in welcoming and encouraging Travis on this journey. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. My name is Travis Seppala, and I am your host. Once again, thank you for joining me, and this is episode 14 of the podcast. So welcome, and let's get started. I'm sure most of you are very familiar with the phrase, greater love has no man than this, that he lay his life down for his friends. In fact, you don't even really have to be a Christian to be familiar with this phrase because it's kind of permeated our society, this romantic idea of someone who's willing to lay their life down and, um, and make their life a sacrifice for other people. It's made its way into, you know, sports teams. You'll see this on shirts like, you know, people who are in sports. It's kind of like, hey, we're all on the same same team together and we're, you know, we're, we're laying our life down for each other. You find it in the military um, where it's the idea that we, we, we love each other so much, we care for each other so much that we're going to lay our life down for each other. And all of this is really, um, well, to be honest, a little weird. Because it, it really doesn't make sense in, in the grand scheme of things because this couldn't have been what Jesus was talking about. Because whether we realize it or not, you know, this this actually these are words that are taken from Jesus. And and it's specifically when he's talking to his disciples and he's giving them a commandment to them, telling them that they're supposed to love one another in the same way that he has loved them already, and so he's looking at it past tense. And then he goes on to say that this is this is what love is, and there is no greater love than laying your life down for the other. And and it's also then repeated, this very same thought is repeated by the Apostle Paul later on in the Bible, and he repeats it in the context of marriage. And he's specifically in the book of Ephesians addressing husbands and telling husbands that they are to love their wives in the same way that Christ loved the church. And the whole understanding then becomes, you know, being willing to lay your life down. And and what we do is is we romanticize this. And that's why it makes it into the public eye. That's why it makes it onto t-shirts. That's why it makes it into the militaries. We romanticize this idea because as soon as we think about the idea of laying your life down for another individual, rather than thinking about it, you know, in, you know, in a common sense sort of way, or in a way that would make sense in the reality that we exist in, we imagine these scenarios that will more than likely none of us will ever face. And the scenario goes something like this, that, you know, being willing to lay your life down for another person means that, you know, somebody who you care about very deeply, their life is in danger, they're about to die. And I'm willing to step in front and take a bullet or take some projectile for them. Or, you know, someone I know is is in dire, you know, something terrible is about to happen to them. And, you know, and we're kind of like in some weird hostage situation and they're next. But no, I say, no, take me instead. Or, or jumping in front uh, of a train or a moving vehicle to push somebody out of the way, knowing that it's going to kill you. 
And, and this then becomes what we say, this is what love is. It looks something like that. And I'm not trying to belittle all of that. I mean, those things, they do happen very rarely, extremely rarely, and they do happen. And, and that's really profound when that kind of stuff happens and, and it resonates with us because of this, the way we romanticize this. But at the same time, let's just be really honest for one moment or allow me to be really honest with you for one moment and just point out the fact that out of all humankind, the chances that anybody, any single one of us is ever going to be put in a situation where a couple of criteria have to be satisfied. So the first criteria that has to be satisfied is you actually have to have someone who's dying or or is in danger of death. And so that's your first criteria. The second criteria is that you actually have the ability to trade places with them and your death means that they're not going to die. The likelihood that that's ever going to happen to any human being is extremely rare. And so the likelihood that it's going to happen to me individually, it's it's almost non-existent. And the same thing goes for you. And so this is what I think is so odd about this because you know, we can fool ourselves into thinking that my day-to-day behavior, that's not really what matters. The thing that shows whether or not I love somebody or I truly care about somebody is my willingness to die for that person. And so, I mean, you see this, you know, many people end up having this weird sort of understanding of what real love is then, because all of a sudden it's like, well, I can go about my day-to-day life. I can kind of neglect somebody. I don't necessarily have to, to pay a whole lot of attention to them. But as long as I'm willing to say, hey, in the borderline situation, in this deadly situation, if we should ever find ourselves in that place, I'm going to die for you. So we're good. We know that you that I love you. And that's all I really need to satisfy. And so, you know, this gives me the ability to, to really not care about anybody at all. And this really can't be what we're talking about. Because as I said before, in most cases, most people are never going to be thrust into that situation. And then on top of it, There's also something else that's really malicious about thinking like this, and that is that as a pastor, I have had, you know, opportunity, and I don't even like using that opportunity, but I mean, I've had many occasions where I've actually been there and watched loved ones watch their loved ones die. And and so, I mean, I've watched a, a husband or a wife slowly watch their spouse suffer and die. I've watched parents sit there at a bedside while their child wastes away from disease or there's been some tragic accident and they're in an emergency room and they're having to make some really difficult decisions concerning things like life support and and those types of things. I've watched children have to do make some of these same go through some of these same situations with their own parents. I've watched friends have to deal with it. And having watched all of that, I can tell you one thing that every single one of these people uh, who have experienced this have in common, and that is if you gave them the opportunity, they would trade places with the person who is suffering in a heartbeat. In fact, in many cases, that's what they most desperately want to do. They want to be able to step in and take the place of the person who is suffering. 
And this is what real life actually looks like. And this is what we need to understand that, you know, we fool ourselves into believing, well, yeah, this means that when death comes, I'm willing to be there for my loved one. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. In most cases, when death actually, should it come, and I hope it never does come to people that you truly love, but all of us end up experiencing it at some point in time. What you're going to find out, though, when that happens is that, you know, 9,999,999 times, you know, out of, out of 10 million, I think I did that right, um, you're just not ever going to have that option. It's not like you're going to be able to say to a doctor, oh, yeah, I realize my loved one's in a tragic accident, but don't you guys have that, that new experimental drug where I take the pill and then all of a sudden everything that's happening to them um, now is happening to me and then they get to trade bodies with me or something like that? Didn't I watch that like on a Disney movie or something like that? Hey, wait a second. I, I I remember reading in in a Harry Potter book where people could change their circumstances. Do, is there a wizard here in the hospital that can accomplish that for me? And you know, and and that, the whole point of using that kind of language is just to point out that really the only time something like that does happen is in a weird place called imagination land. It only happens in our dreams. The reality that that we face in those in those really terrible moments is we actually aren't given the option of trading places with the person that we love. And yet at the same time, we have to acknowledge that we're called to love one another and we're called to do this very thing, that greater love has no man than that they would lay their life down for the other. And this is really what, you know, exemplifies love. And, and, and so first and foremost, we understand that Jesus did this on the cross. But it's kind of interesting because he's not saying to his disciples when he speaks to him, even in, in John, when he says this, and if anybody's kind of curious as to where it is in, in John, it's chapter 15 of John. And he's saying to them that this is my commandment to you, that you love one another in the same way that I have loved you already. This is prior to his crucifixion. This is prior to his death. He's saying, you know, in the way that you've actually seen me exemplify this out in your own lives already. He's not, he doesn't tell them, I want you to love other people. And this is my commandment that you love other people in the way that you're going to see me love you in in the next couple of hours here as I go late, as I go suffer and die on a cross. So this then becomes an obviously wrong interpretation of this text. In the same way, we can think about what Paul says in, in Ephesians when he writes and he says that, Husbands, I want you to love your wives in the same way that Christ loved the church. If we automatically go to the nth degree, if we automatically go to the death and the dying, well, then what does that mean? Does that mean I'm supposed to, like, flay myself? Do I need to go get a Roman guard and have them somehow perform? Well, actually, there's no such thing as a Roman guard as it exists. So maybe I just need to get a group of people and have them somehow historically recreate a a true crucifixion with the beating and everything else. And then on top of it, kind of put a sign that says, you know, to, to my wife with love 
you know, kind of with a thumbs up saying, love you, honey, or something like that. I mean, which is ridiculous. Of course, that's not what you're being asked to do. You know, this isn't love. It's not being able to, to engage in some sort of a masochistic behavior. It's not about making sure that you hurt yourself. And it's not about creating some sort of a fantasy where, where you say, well, someday that's going to happen and, and I'm prepared for that to happen. So my wife or, you know, if, if she dies, as long as I'm willing to say that I'll take her place, then, then we're good. Um, now, before I go any farther with this, I, I'd just like to address the fact that this does create some serious problems because... You know, we might in our head think to ourselves, well, yeah, we're doing this and, and this means that I'm actually a wonderful friend. This means that I'm, I'm actually somebody who truly cares for my brothers. I truly care for my children. I truly care for my spouse because I thought it out really hard. And if that situation ever happens, um, then I'm going to be willing to stand in, in, in that breach and take the bullet, so to speak, realizing that the chances of that ever happening are almost nothing. And so, you know, not only is it unlikely that it's going to happen, it also gives a person license to basically be however they want to be. You can continue to be a selfish, disconnected, um, you know, absolutely self-absorbed person and, and completely disregard the needs of all of the different people in your life. And, and just fool yourself into this thinking that, well, as long, you know, I, we're good. I'm willing to die for them. That should that ever, should that situation ever come up? And in the meantime, I'm just going to go back to taking care of me. And, and this kind of thought process surrounding love isn't actually even remotely what it looks like. And, and this is really important, I think, for people to understand. It's to kind of pull people out of this idea of a fantasy world. And it's also to kind of prepare you for the reality that, you know, go talk to some people who've actually had to experience the death of somebody who's close to them. And what you're going to find out is that scenario that you might have created in your head, it doesn't actually work like that. It doesn't, you never actually get that opportunity. And that was something that for myself, I had to learn on my own. I mean, my wife didn't die, uh, just so everybody knows. But there, there have been two separate occasions. But the first one by far is the one that is most memorable to me and, and burned itself you know, into my being the most. And, that, and so there was two separate occasions where she almost died. Um, but the first one was when she was diagnosed um, with late-onset juvenile diabetes. Uh, so she's a type 1 diabetic. But at the time of, of us getting married, we didn't know that. And, and so we had been married for quite some time. And all of a sudden, you know, she was not feeling well, losing weight, a lot of other things going on. But neither one of us had, ever, had ever had any experience with diabetes. And the idea that type 1 diabetes, like we knew that we both lived healthy lives. So like, obviously, we're not thinking you know, her diet or anything like that is going to be causing diabetes. And like the idea that type one diabetes can actually come on as late as, you know, your twenties, thirties, in some cases, your forties is something that we didn't know about. Um, and so as a result, we kind of ignored some really dangerous symptoms. And to the point that when we finally went to the hospital, 
um, once they got her blood sugars back and they got a couple of, they, they began to realize what they were dealing with. I'll never forget um, where they came out, they put her on a stretcher in the waiting room. They hauled her back into this emergency room area. And within a matter of minutes, they had her hooked up to all sorts of different IVs. And and the moment where I really began to get worried is when they put the, the EKG on her and they were monitoring that. And I can remember asking the doctors, well, hey, this looks serious. What's this all about? You know, why, why, why are you doing all this stuff? And, and he looked at me very seriously and he said, we need to make sure that your wife doesn't uh, go into cardiac arrest or she doesn't have a stroke. And, and then I realized, you know, I had to go sit down and talk with a few different people, but they, they, they let me know. They were really honest with me. You know, now that we were there, we were settled and everything else, they let me know that my wife was in a lot of danger and the next 12 to 24 hours were, were going to be, you know, really touch and go. They had to take very care, you know, they had to try to get her blood sugars down and her electrolyte levels were all out of whack. You know, her magnesium, sodium levels, all of it was just in extremely dangerous areas. And and so they needed to get all of this under control. And at the same time, they needed to be very careful as to how they did this. And so all of a sudden, here we go from, you know, la-di-da, you know, in the morning, you know, to you know, your wife might die. And I can remember realizing in that moment, that was when it first hit home for me, that here she is, she's dying, and I'm absolutely helpless. I couldn't trade places with her. Not only that, there was nothing that I specifically could do to even help her in this situation, because I had no comprehension as to what was going on. And so really, you just end up sitting there watching all of this happen. And and over time, as the day went on, they finally were able to get her blood sugars under control and a couple of other things kind of stabilized. And they let me know um, it was a tiny little ICU room. There was nowhere to sleep or anything like that. And so we lived about a little less than 10 minutes away from that particular hospital. And so they let me know that you can go home and, and if anything would happen, we'll call you. And so I went and told Johanna, I said, listen, hon, I'm going to go to bed. I'm going to go home and, you know, you're stable now. Everything's okay and, and I'll see you in the morning. But I, I you know, everything's okay as far as I, what I understood. And there was an RN who overheard me talking to her and it was like 1130 at night. And as I was leaving, she pulled me off to the side and she said, listen, I, I overheard what you were just saying to her. And, and I just think you need to understand that your wife is still really, really sick. And we're still trying to make sure that certain levels, I think sodium level and potassium level were still really out of whack. And I can't even remember everything um, particularly well because there was so little sleep that had happened. But she let me know that they were still trying to make sure she wouldn't drop into a coma. And and she said, but if anything does happen, you will be called immediately. And so she took my phone number down, and I went home like that. Um, and, and, of course, uh, I went to just like a really weird place in my head because I, in some way, I don't even know how I got to this place. It was probably like 1 in the morning. And by one in the morning, I had convinced myself if I didn't go to sleep, then I would never get a call from this nurse telling me that something terrible had happened. 
And so all I had to do was stay awake. And, and then that turned into delirium to the point where I was saying, well, as long as I can stay awake, my wife will live. And, and I'm going to accomplish something. And I realize how ridiculous that might sound. But, you know, that's, that's kind of where the mind goes in, in situations like that. At least that's where my mind went. And, and so even though it was ridiculous, that's what I was convincing myself of. And then I realized how ridiculous that was. And eventually I fell asleep. Uh, and, and when I woke up the following morning, I remember that portion of the Bible being in my head that, that this is what love is. And this is what a husband is supposed to do, to be willing to lay his life down. And I realized that for the longest of times, that's kind of how I had thought of that verse, that I have to be willing to take a bullet for my wife. I have to be willing to jump in front of a moving vehicle in order to save her life. And now I was dealing with this harsh realization that that's actually not how this kind of stuff works. It doesn't. You don't actually get to to jump onto the hospital bed and, and take your loved one's place. And And I had a lot of time over the next couple of days to really meditate and think on that verse. And I realized that really... That's the point where I realized Jesus wasn't saying that I want you to love in the way that I'm going to love you. He says, I want you to love one another in the same way that I have already loved you. You see, his life already was an offering. His life already was a sacrifice. And this is what it means to live your life out in such a way that you're sharing the love of Christ with people. It's not being willing to die It's being willing to live for someone, to make every moment of your life a living sacrifice to that person, and to lay your life down in that way. Laying your life down in that way doesn't mean, am I willing to to take their place in this, if, if some sort of a terrible situation were to present itself. Needless to say, of course, I'm willing to do that for the people that I love. But more importantly, it's, am I willing to put my own needs, my own wants, my own desires aside and to make their needs, their wants, and their desires more important than mine, to live in service to them. And, and that's really what this means. It's not a question of whether or not you're willing to die for other people. It's, it's a question of whether you're willing to make your life an act of service to other people. So pull yourself out of imagination land, okay? Pull yourself out of this place where this is what you think this actually looks like and understand that at what, what we're actually being told when we're being told by Jesus to love in the way that he loved and by when he says greater love has no one than this, that they lay their life down for their friends, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that my life, your life, becomes an act of service for all of those around you. And this, ultimately, shines the light of Christ in the world around us. Thank you so much for joining me this day. And I would continue to ask, um, if you enjoy this, this, um, this podcast, to like and subscribe and to share with it. Uh, share it with as many people as possible. Thank you and goodbye.